Welcome to the fourth episode of Talking Studio, an audio discussion series making space for the creative work and experiences of students in the College of Fine Arts at Ohio University. By engaging in discussion, Talking Studio hopes to acknowledge and illuminate the spectrum of interests and variety of concerns driving students in their research. We took a little break over the winter months, but the warm weather has us back at it. In today's conversation, we'll meet three students of theater who share overlapping experiences, working on stage productions at the university, with the Tantrum Theater, and beyond. Allison Epperson is in her final year in the MFA directing program at Ohio and brings an infectious energy to this conversation. Scenic designer Jacob Brown came to graduate school after what he describes as a work-induced heart attack to find a more rewarding path in stage design. And sophomore in the Honors Tutorial College and BFA theater major, Olivia Rocco, has a focus in directing and devising and a love for teaching yoga. Now we're in a little strange closet space, and I, you know... <laughs> we're all huddled together. We're going to be... Keeping warm over the microphone. Um, yeah, it kind of this space kind of reminds me of there's like seeing uh, being John Malkovich where they have like a portal <laughs> in an office building and you go through it and then you're inside of somebody's mind. That's what I imagine this place is like. When there's we, a few we doors like out this that. door. There's like a panel loose over here, and we'll just <laughs> I'll go away. There, so there, there are a few of those that yeah. you can find. Sure, there's some in the, the costume shop. You could <laughs> duck your head though. Yeah, wear yeah. a hard hat because <laughs> if you don't, you will be sad really just a chance to talk about what you guys are doing and um, how you got here and why you came here. And I'm Allison Epperson. I'm a third-year MFA directing candidate. I uh, came here after a long stint with, an, with a Missoula Children's Theater, which is an international touring organization. I did hour-long musicals based on fairy tales with children ages 5 to 18. We would go to a town audition on a Monday for anybody who wanted to audition. We'd start rehearsals. We'd rehearse all week and then perform Friday, Saturday, go to a new town on Sunday, start over. And we would do that about 40 weeks out of the year. And it was a pretty grueling pace. And I play with the adults again. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, after a while doing fairy tales and dressing up as a leprechaun and a starfish and hanging out with seahorses and coyotes and country folk. It, it It's great for a while, and it's wonderful to just play when the world is yeah. going nuts. It's like, and now we're going to have some fun, everybody. <laughs> but Introduce yourself, Jacob. Oh, I'm Jacob Brown. I, uh, I'm a second-year MFA scenic designer here at Ohio University. I came here from Southern California. Where I was doing scenic design and uh, painting and technical director of Star's Dinner Theater. I uh, was in my undergrad, and I was an actor, and I have horrible stage fright, so I had to find a different career path. Uh, so I quickly found scenic design, and we made our own program, but it wasn't enough. So I went out to the community, and I, from there, uh, found Star's Dinner Theater, where I did 22 of my shows. And when, the minute I got hired, I was so young, everyone quit. <laughs> so I instantly became this kid that had to know the tools and... Uh, how to build a set and then how to paint a set and then how to also scenically design a set 
And I did that for a year and a half. And when I had my heart attack halfway through, I... <laughs> Which started... is impressive. It was only half the way yeah, yeah. that you got through that far. Yeah. And <laughs> when I had my heart attack and I went through it, I, I said, all right, I need to reevaluate what I want to do and find out specifically what I want. And so I <laughs> decided upon uh, scenic design. I found out about Erda's, came to Ohio University and... I've been developing my skill set so I don't have to build and paint and everything else <laughs> along with it. So. <laughs> so before you, did you work with Tantrum last summer, not this past, but the previous? Yeah, I got, um, when I went to Erda's, uh, a selling point was that Tantrum was building and was becoming something. And so uh, when I showed my portfolio, they said that they were looking for a painter. So I came in as a uh, charge artist slash scenic crew. Um, and it was just Vince, Sal Pedro, and myself. And uh, we, we did that whole first season together. And then this second season, I came in uh, with the opportunity to be the assistant scenic designer. Cool. Yep. Cool. Um, all right. So uh, you, you come from different backgrounds, but it sounds like, um, from what you're saying, you both are coming in with the a kind of desire to, to either refocus or, or you know, Make a make a new step in a new direction, right? Um, which is it makes a lot of sense yeah. <laughs> from from what you both said about what, what you've been doing before grad school. So, um, how how big is the the grad program you guys are in? I have four people in my department okay. as far as grads go. Yeah. Um, five. I'm sorry, we have five as of this year. One's a half costume, half scenic, but um, and then we have two undergrads. So that's about as far as our depth goes with scenic yeah. design here. Gotcha. My first year, including myself, there were two of us. And now there's four. <laughs> All right. Nonsense so who is that mentor? Dennis Delaney. Okay. He's he's wonderful. He's 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 very wonderful. But it's it's really strange coming into a program and there's only one other person. It's yep. so small. And that was one thing that made coming to grad school really hard was because that's not unique to Ohio University mm-hmm. when you're looking at a directing program anyway. Right. There's typically two candidates. Right. So in a, in in a system that's already hard to get into, right. then we're going to make it even harder and have two. And yeah. my husband was also looking for programs at the same time. Okay. So we were just like, we're just going to try, see what happens. Yeah. Um, so you did you both work on Caroline or Change? Yes. 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 Oh, Caroline. What was that like working with Caroline or Change? That was amazing and a wonderful synergy of people. I felt from the from day one, it was such a different mix of personalities, ages, cultures, backgrounds, educations, but we came together in this play that celebrates that and deals with the conflict of those Mm -hmm. cultures. And we all came together, worked really well together, Mm -hmm. which when that happens and it's, it's something to celebrate, but we all hated for it to end. And it was one of those plays that you, you end up in the course of rehearsals, seeing the play over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And And you wake up and in the morning and you're starting to replay things in your head. And when you're doing the dishes, you're singing the songs and it's, it infects your life, whether you like it or not. But this was one of those moments, one of those shows where that was wonderful. And I still have it now. Uh, Are you familiar with the show at all? Yeah, I went to see it. It was really, really great. It's, I, I, 
I have trouble listening to the original Broadway cast, even though they're wonderful. <laughs> they're wonderful in their own way, but yeah. I have such a place in my heart now for mm-hmm. Ken and Christina and Ariana and Mariah and Colleen and all of these wonderful people. Yeah. It's like I, I can't not hear their voices when I <laughs> think of those songs now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, this is a, a sort of question that um, I may circle back with uh, in relation to the other plays that we'll talk about, but how do you think that this play, that this production of Carolina Change uh, may be unique or different to previous iterations? <clears throat> of Caroline or of previous yeah. shows at Tantrum? No, just of Caroline. Do you think that there's... Did you guys have conversations or talk about doing something a little a little bit unique or a little bit different, or was that not part of the kind of... I don't know. Well, Robert... Barry Fleming, the director, approached it as uh, a memory play in the same way that Glass Menagerie is a memory mm-hmm. play, having these essential signifiers, meaning that we only had on stage what had to be there. Mm-hmm. If it didn't have to be there, it was gone, it, which is different from how some other productions have done it. Okay. Caroline didn't have a house. It, mm-hmm. She had a crate. Yeah. And a radio. And it was over to the side and that's yeah. all that we needed and we knew we're not in the house we're not in the in the family's house anymore. We're at her house. Yeah. We didn't need anything else. Yeah. We had it. Interesting. And that ties right in with like the, the set design. I mean the design yeah. of the of the stage and what's presented to the audience, right? Yeah. And I think if I could just plug uh me coming into Tantrum this year was based off of who they had as a designer. And uh, I got the opportunity to go see Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812 on Broadway, um, which Jason was the associate designer for. So having seen his work and the quality that he had put out, I was a little nervous about my own skills level and thought it would be a good challenge to push in applying his approach to Caroline with this minimal aspect and getting to have a discussion with him several times about how he chose certain items or mm-hmm. uh, the feelings that he was going for. It was mostly based off of mood, and um, at least that's what I felt like throughout his conversations. And uh, this minimal atmosphere was brought forth by a lot of how he portrayed this memory of, you know, with the scrim, and it's kind of this fading in and out mm-hmm. of a bayou. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating um, uh, you know, having the washer and dryer represented by, you know, two uh, live performers. <clears throat> and and as an audience member, I didn't pick up on that right away. I was sort of like wondering why are these two, who are these two people in relationship to <laughs> Caroline? But, you know, I'm a little slow on the uptake. And, um, but, but I think that, you know, what became really apparent was when she turned the radio on and then there was like, you know, there now, there's, now there's radio Three personified and are. then obviously it's washer and dryer personified. <clears throat> um, and, yeah, and I thought that was really fascinating. I mean, it's a fascinating concept to like... Well, know. those are the people yeah. in her world or those are the things in yeah. her world. <clears throat> you know? uh, those washer dryer were very difficult to find. It is very difficult to find a 1963 <laughs> seven cycle wash machine in good condition. And then to add in, it had to be that shade of blue that it was. <laughs> it, it's, I called every rental house in the nation. <laughs> and then he says, I then I want a dryer. And we found one in the middle of 
nowhere Ohio and I drove out there and they're about to demolish this house. They had the wrecking ball next to it and I'm 120 pounds so you could see me trying to pick up a lead washer with this old man. It was probably one of the most comedic scenes. I had to call the designer in New York and be like, okay, so I got your washer but I have to tell you this story. (laughs) Between that and the search engine history that's on our computers when we're looking for stuff for shows, I mean... If the wrong people got a hold of this, (laughs) we could be in some serious trouble. But we say, no, it's for our work. It's for a show. It's for a show. That's totally fine. No, it's it's totally innocent. We're not... All right. So um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about Top Girls. Can Can you talk to me about why... That why that play? What's your what was please, the yeah, please why <laughs> explain the it to why I'm putting you through this? The, did you choose to do this play? Is that your yes? You know? I pitched two plays to the season selection committee okay. uh, to be part of the main stage season season, which is part of uh, when when you're a third year, your show, your thesis production gets put on the main stage. So you okay. get main stage budget and main yeah. stage support. Mm-hmm. Hence, Jacob gets to work with me, and we have gotcha. we have some money this time, which money. is great, <laughs> and shop support, and mm. we can say, hey, we want this thing, and we can be, okay, yeah, we can do this. It's not, <laughs> okay, who, how can we do this? Who has $30? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's got 30 bucks? How can we figure that out? Uh, so I pitched two, and this was the one that got chosen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written by Carol Churchill, who is regarded by many as to be one of the, if not the major writer of post-World War II, 20th century, particularly for women, and you'll find her works in any anthology about modern drama that you pick up. And it's a play that follows the journey of a woman named Marlene, Mm -hmm. who has working-collar roots, and she's able to break out of a cycle of poverty in order to make something of herself. And it's about at what cost did she do that, Mm -hmm. what she had to sacrifice along the way. And at the very beginning, uh, it it goes backwards in time. So the very first scene is her celebrating her promotion as managing director of an employment agency in London in 1982, but she's celebrating with historical figures Mm -hmm. who are no longer living Isabella Bird, a Victorian traveler, a 13th century Japanese concubine, Mm -hmm. uh, a painting from Bruegel, patient Griselda. She's celebrating with people who are no longer with us anymore because one thing she had to sacrifice was friendship and a social life. Which is something that we don't struggle with today at all. Not at all. <laughs> Not unrelatable. It, so the play asks <laughs> us questions about class. It starts off thinking that uh, it, it makes you think that it's a play about feminism, which it is, but it's also a play about class and about uh, what what is success and mm-hmm. what does that mean to you? Yeah. And how can you really be... How can you forge friendships in a society that is so capitalist and so in it for yourself? Mm-hmm. How can you form friendships? Is there overlap in your own experience? I uh, in in Switching some paths? ways uh, there's yeah there's there's personal sacrifices that you have to make and I'm I was the first person in my family to uh, on on my mother's side to get a 
a bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. and now I'm the first one to get a master's degree. Mm-hmm. So I I remember early on in my getting a bachelor's degree, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and there was a moment when I thought, am I going to have to go home and help her Mm -hmm. and take care of her because my brother wasn't in a position to do that. And I remember she said, don't. Don't you dare come home. Mm -hmm. And that killed me a little bit, but she was right. Right. So it's... The, the play also deals with those sacrifices, and if you're a woman, are you forced to answer things in a certain way? Walk me through the process from the time that you, um, you know, won a spot so that you would have this, you know, this play in your near horizon. When we first get here, our second semester, we do a realism play. So it's okay. a, a play where people play people, mm-hmm. kitchen-style drama, hopefully minimal set costume needs. <laughs> Because you're performing it in a classroom, minimal support. Maybe we have a budget of like 20 bucks, and that's pretty much you can (laughs) chip in things. Uh, And then the next year, you get a little more support. You're in the Forum Theater, and you do what is called a style piece. And that has a broad definition, like what is style? So it can be people playing animals or people playing death, things like that. It can be abstract ideas. You could be doing Waiting for Godot. You could be doing Machinal. You could be doing something like Mrs. Packard, like I did, that takes place in a mental insane asylum in the 19th century. So, yeah, it could be anything. And then the third year, like, before I even started directing and going into rehearsals for that show, I was told, Replace for thesis, replace for thesis, replace for thesis, which I did all that summer trying to find plays. And I knew that I was going into that semester doing a very heady drama. And I thought, I need to find a comedy or my head is going to (laughs) explode. So I was reading all of these comedies and I thought, oh, this could be fun. This could be fun. This could be fun. But for various reasons, they got turned down. (laughs) And I kept getting drawn back to reading dramas and I had to read Top Girls for an acting assignment and it became it started to rise to the top of my list the more I worked on it and that's what I ended up pitching alright I really wanted you to plug that it's a comedy it, there's funny things in there there really is there's some there's some really great lines in there um, so, so um have you? I don't know. I don't know the history of the play. Have you seen it um, performed or just simply read it? I have only seen a taped performance of the revival in 1991 that okay. Max Stafford Clark, the original director, okay. directed for television as well yeah. as the stage revival. And it, uh, it does the play almost exactly as written. It flips mm-hmm. the first two scenes because for okay. a television audience... He thought that they needed to understand certain things about the play first, but that's the only major change. I have only, that's the only time I've seen it. Okay. Um, and it, it's set in a certain time period, the narrative of the play is set? Yes, in a the bulk of it is in early 1980s Britain, okay. the rise of Margaret Thatcher. Gotcha. Which was when it was debuted in the early 80s, right? Yes, it premiered mm-hmm. in 1982. Is it still contemporary? I mean, is the is the bulk of the absolutely, story still... Absolutely, absolutely. And that's mainly because of 
the questions that it asks about if you come from a cycle of poverty, is it better for you to break out and make something of yourself Mm -hmm. or do you follow the obligations or stay Mm -hmm. true to the obligations to your family and your community? And if you're a woman, are you inclined to answer that question in a certain way and about success and also about the rise of a very polarizing political figure. Mm -hmm. In this time, it's Margaret Thatcher. And while when she first came into power, a lot of people thought this is indicative of women's rights and equality Mm -hmm. for the sexes, but Churchill, as well as many others, thought that based on her politics, it's going to benefit the rich at the expense Mm -hmm. of the poor, which we don't hear that kind of story ever nowadays, right? It's it's very much a product of its time. It's had an extended shelf life. Mm-hmm. Whereas a play like Really, Really, when it's dealing with sexual assault, I'm wondering in 10 years if it's going to be viewed the same way. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. I have my doubts, but it was still a, an important piece to do here at this campus now yeah. because of the questions it asked about that. And here, I think... We're dealing with the same questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so the same kind of question has to do with the scenic design. How closely did does the scenic design hue to what has been done with this play previously? Did you guys research the way that the scenic design has been approached and then try to update it? Or So I can kind of tell you my process, which yeah, was to uh, read as much as I could about the criticism because it premiered in the UK and it was successful. Um, and then to understand that it was coming to America and then look at when it debuted on or off Broadway. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it had awful reviews. Um, America doesn't understand it. And then there was a lot of criticism actually about the set in the, in the US version. So um, not trying to hold myself to a standard of I have to do this and people have to like it. I began to look at with Allison different ways of viewing it. And we decided to want turntable pretty quickly. Um, we didn't know what size it was going to be quite yet, but we played with these different formations and boxes and how we could display this world and not be on the nose about women's suffrage and the different narratives that this show has within it. Eastern European <clears throat> theater and uh, theater revolt and uh, how it demonstrates uh, angst and emotives. And it's our, our show kind of has this baseline of fear and unknown. And um, so allowing to play with that and then bring it into this world of, uh, you know, I have this huge sculpture, which is kind of like the Mount Rushmore towards women. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, still being carved out, being worked on. And it's the question of, well, why? Why? Why are we still debating and so I think we brought a different flavor to it we've given it more of an operatic something visual to look at mm-hmm. and then we are okay it's there oh this is the scene and it's starting let me focus here I don't need to look at this anymore because it's not right. changing right so and there's just a fluidity mm-hmm. to this to the script just reading it it's and now we're here and now we're here and right. now we're here and we're shifting major locations. We're going from an office space in London Mm -hmm. to a flat in uh, Suffolk Mm -hmm. to the backyard of that flat. So how do we do that (laughs) easily and with fluidity and not have it be a million stagehands coming on, putting things out? Yeah. Or if we do that, how is that advancing the story? Right. And I think one of our first conversations I had with... Allison, we talked about uh, 
how to approach this like sequence of episodes is what I was calling it. Mm-hmm. And I th- we we, we kind of did a little bit of research on dreams. I don't know if you remember that. Remember the fluidity <laughs> of dreams. So if you think of the show when watching it, is I'm uh, I'm focused on like as you are as first person watcher, uh, an audience member, you're visualizing it as you're dreaming. And then if you blink or if you wake up and you go back to sleep and you change the channel, you have a different dream appearing. Mm-hmm. So I, I would we've been talking about this as designers and uh, a little bit with the director and uh, hearing the actresses talk about it. Um, but it's this idea of, you know, where are you and how, how does each person individually see this world? And it's interesting yeah. to talk about even just that. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the idea that, that um, a set design like this <clears throat> um, brings to the, brings to the foreground a sense that um, each each space that's in, within the, the rotating um, architecture remains connected, and it remains connected because of the people that are involved. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like a childhood home and then an office space. They may seem like they're worlds apart, but they just they share a wall. You know, and they're like on either side of a wall or something. And I, I mean, that's an interesting and that's visual also representation true, of a connection. There. And that's also true not only in the scenic de- elements, but also in the casting of the show. Okay. Historically, there's a lot of doubling. Okay. It was originally intended to have about 14 to 17 actresses in it, but at the company where this debuted, uh, the Royal Court, that was uh, fiscally not yeah. entirely possible. So they said, all right, let's double it. Hmm. So this person will play this part in that opening celebration mm-hmm. scene, but then she's also playing her sister later on. So then That's they have elements between characters, what mm-hmm. connects them. And there's some very strong elements between <laughs> some of them. Yeah. That his and uh, I expanded some of them mm-hmm. uh, to have more people involved in the production, but again, not having like a 14, 17 yeah. part play. It's only nine actors that I have in this show. Uh, So there's that, there's a history of that when it comes to this show as well. So we got our cue also from that. Yeah. Yeah, that's also really interesting, that idea of doubling. Um, So when does this play open? It opens uh, November 2nd. Okay. The preview and November third is the official opening night. And what where is it being staged? In the Baker Theater. Okay. Kinder right Hall. above us. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right where we are now. That's right. So hello, I'm Olivia Rocco, and I'm a sophomore in the Honors Tutorial College studying general theater with an emphasis in directing and devising. Okay, great. Um, And when you say directing and devising, can you elaborate a little bit on that term, devising especially, because I think that's something new for my ears, and I'm not sure how that... Yeah, certainly. Devising is a little bit new to me, actually, also, since I came to college. But essentially what you do is you take a group of actors, collaborators in general, um, and you get together with an idea and you sort of build a piece from scratch together. Um, So you, through sort of actor games or different dance techniques, etc., you create or devise your own piece and then present that rather than approaching it with a script in hand. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's a little, there's a little improvisation, not, not a pre-scripted production is, is kind of part of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so this summer you worked with Tantrum and was that your first time working with the Tantrum Theater? Yes. I was an assistant stage manager for Carolina Change. So that was oh. the only one I worked on. All right. Um, and so what was that experience like? What, 
Wow, it was really incredible. It was my first time in a professional theater environment also, so that was really amazing getting to see so many talented artists, both on the design and directing side, and also the actors, of course, were amazing. Um, and getting to know the position of assistant stage manager a little bit better, um, figuring out what it's really like to work through all the kinks and mitigate all those problems that arise. It was a really fun experience. That's great. Um, for those outside of the theater world, what <laughs> what does an assistant stage manager do? Yeah, so we start the theater process in rehearsals. So before that happens, stage management comes in, makes sure the room is safe, ready to go, that all of the paperwork is copied and ready to be given to anyone. Um, once we kind of get started, we try to keep rehearsals on track. We make sure everyone takes their breaks when they need to. If somebody needs to get something, we get it for them. We just kind of make sure the gears are running smoothly. And then once we get into the performance space, we once again make sure everything is safe, um, you know, go through make sure everybody's feeling ready and prepared for the performance each night. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <clears throat> There's a lot of kinks that can happen, I'm sure. Yeah, certainly, um, especially with um, props and mm -hmm. moving parts of sets. We control all that from backstage, so getting those to work sometimes is a challenge, but yeah. it's always worth it in the end. Yeah, I've always been fascinated with um, all of the, the kind of uh, logistics and the, the kind of theater that happens in the production of the play before the play actually is on stage for an audience yeah. there's like a whole bunch of theater that has to happen <laughs> before and by i guess by theater i'm thinking like you know maybe it's part of the role of the stage um director to sort of or the stage manager um all of that like getting the forms lined up getting the rules established you mm -hmm. know the communication that has to happen with the with all of the cast and crew <clears throat> and and all of that stuff that has to happen even on a fairly smallish play it feels like, you know, its own thing, right? Like its own beast. And the audience doesn't get to see that or even experience it when they come to see the play. But uh, that seems like a whole other thing that happens. Yeah, cool. definitely performance is like the tip of the iceberg. And there's a, yeah. a village holding it up underneath. <laughs> I like that. That's cool. Um, so what about Caroline or Change? What was your... Um, Give me your thoughts on the play itself. Did you you went to see it as an audience member at least once, or you watched it at least once? Well, being a stage manager, I got to see them perform it throughout rehearsals all the way through. Although I never saw the fully realized performance with the design entirely. Um, so so far as the text goes and the emotions and content of the musical, I think particularly in this time, it was really hard hitting. There was. Um, mentions of statues coming down of Confederate soldiers and a lot of tensions of race and religion and a lot of dense and intense material wrapped up in a story about a young boy and a maid. Mm -hmm. So it's this sort of these concepts that are huge and scary and complicated through the eyes of a young child mm -hmm. and kind of seeing that and how those inherent prejudices that we have kind of manifest when we don't even how that intention was really interesting to see on stage. And I think it was pretty beautifully set up. Um, yeah. Obviously, Tony Kushner is amazing, and the work he does is he's masterful at crafting a script well. So and You got to work with people from all over on this play, right? Yeah, it was amazing um, seeing people outside of Ohio or Ohio University, but really getting to experience people with all kinds of backgrounds and training and approaches. 
so why don't we talk a little bit about uh, who you're working with here, like who your mentors or professors are that you're working most closely with? Yeah. Sorry about that. I'm really lucky in that I get to work closely with a lot of our professors here. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cornish is my advisor and, excuse me, and he's amazing at providing insight and really setting us up to succeed and also to fail when we need to in order to learn. Particularly this semester, I'm working pretty closely with three professors, Shelley Delaney, the director of the Vibrator Play. I'm assisting her and seeing her process and getting to help out when I can. So that's great. And then Rebecca Vernoy is my mentor on a upcoming play that I'm directing called Church. And then Dennis Delaney is my tutorial professor. So we work one-on-one in the class about directing where he helps me prepare to do my trade. So as part of the HTC program, you have access to a little bit more customized uh, degree track where you get to do a little more than just the standard um, template. And, and I guess I'm curious about that. What draw, what drew you into to directing? Did you come in knowing you wanted to be a director? It was kind of funny because I started in theater the way most people do, just acting sort of for fun, to get out of my shell, hang out with my friends, that sort of thing. Yeah. But at my high school, we had a spring performance where everything was written by students. And my friend wrote a play and didn't want to direct it and said, hey, would you direct this for me? And I was hesitant because, you know, acting was so much fun. But the moment that I tried it, I knew I loved it. I just there's something about seeing someone's potential and trying to work it out of them and craft a story, um, you know, just give something to people. Take all these little bits that you can gather from everyone's talents and just sort of mold it into something to give to an audience is such a rewarding experience. So I came in knowing that I wanted to pursue that more. So um, really the addition that I've gotten since being here is a more intense focus on movement and sort of developing new work and that sort of element of theater. But I definitely like being behind the set, kind of helping out to shape the performance. What about the what about the back and forth collaboration between an actor and the director and like you know you're sort of circling around some kernel of idea and you're you're back and forth is that something that that you really relish or is that like a challenge or I think it's probably both but I love it I always think that ideas only get better when they're bounced off of several people yeah. so working with so many talented actors here at school and just in general, they come in with such a unique perspective that sometimes you'll have something in mind for a character or a concept, and then you see someone else do it through their eyes, and your whole idea is shifted, and they open up a part of that character to you that you wouldn't have seen before. So really, I think that why a theater is so magical is because it's so collaborative, and everybody brings in a little bit of something new and different that makes performances so rich and complicated. What do you do in the classroom? Wow, I'd say every class is pretty different. It's a lot of experiential learning. So with Dennis in my tutorial, for example, we've taken the play Arcadia, and I'm just working on it as if I was going to produce it later. So we're just starting those steps of the research you do before, thinking about casting, setting up rehearsal schedules, just really practical work. But then in other classes, for example, in a studio class with the actors, I take a movement class where we do a lot of breath work, organic movement, um, finding just like a home in our bodies so that we can use ourselves as our tool. That's, I think, the biggest thing that you find in theater classrooms is learning how to use not only your mind as a tool for creation, but your entire body, um, 
to help you really build something. Because when you are your instrument, <laughs> you have to be trained to use it all specifically. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, so you're helping. You're you're working with um, Shelley Delaney, um, and you're and you guys are um, getting ready to open a play, right? Yeah. <clears throat> So talk to me about the play. You can because I don't know that anybody else I'm talking to today is involved in this production. So I'm curious. I've heard about it and I've been working on helping with promotions, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. So the Vibrator play is a really unique play. It's written by Sarah Rule, who is an amazing playwright who kind of plays with this idea of magic realism. So the play is about the initial invention of the vibrator and what that was like in society at the time. I think it's sort of like a little forgotten nugget of history that people don't like to talk about or don't know how to talk about. So this venue that Sarah Rule has given it in the home of just a woman and her husband and what it means when someone's using a vibrator in the next room, the title of the play, and what does that do to society? How does that begin to change what we think about our form? And so we really just play with those lines and dive yeah. into that history a little bit. How big is the, is it a big cast, a small cast? There's seven. So okay. it's standard size, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so what kinds of, what kinds of things have you been um, involved with in terms of use? And what was your role with that again? I'm an assistant director. Assistant director. So as an assistant director, you describe um, observing a lot, which is, makes <laughs> yes. sense. Um, and Shelley has, has directed lots of plays, so it's probably, you know, it's a good mentoring Absolutely. experience. But what else have you been doing? Well, a unique challenge for our production is that the set is rotating for the entirety of the production. So one aspect of any time you work in the round, but particularly if the set is moving, is that you have to be everywhere as a director. So I mostly function as an extra set of eyes for Shelley, kind of showing her what the opposite side of the stage looks like, helping her get a really 360 experience of it so that we can cater to all the audience members no matter where they're sitting. All right. In producing this, did you guys start the whole process like at the beginning of this academic year or did you start over the summer? Well, there's... A lot of work that starts really early on. I mean, casting begins in February when we have general okay. auditions. So right. you see people called in for callbacks about a month after that. And design team starts working about the beginning of last semester, kind of okay. creating concepts, yeah. having meetings, working on set design, sound design, those sorts of things. A lot of research is done over the summer, kind of crafting the design a little more specifically so that the moment we get here this semester, all of the crews can start building since we're the right. first show of the semester. And then the first day of classes, we had our first day of rehearsal where we brought all the actors in for our first read through. And then we started table work. So sitting around a table, going through the play line by line, mm -hmm. moment by moment, asking ourselves, is this real? Did that happen? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, and kind of yeah. discovering the script in a new way before we get on our feet. That's another thing that's interesting is that the script is just a sort of set of markers and and it doesn't really outline every single every single detail of the play, right? I mean, yeah. any script is just a it's just a kind of skeleton. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> was there a moment in the in the work up to, you know, actual rehearsal time when there were some like aha moments for you or or multiple aha moments like, oh, it, where you got more insight into the story or the narrative? Absolutely. We brought in a lot of 
experts to come talk about hysteria at the time, what that mental illness meant, was mental illness a concept in this time period, and a lot of interesting things about the period. And I haven't worked with too many period plays yet, so really getting to know what that point in time felt like Mm. for people living in it was really amazing and revelatory. But another thing that just sticks with me all the time is that the vibrator was the fifth household appliance that was automated. So before you have vacuums, you have vibrators in houses, which was a moment where it just really hit me that there's a lot we don't know about (laughs) this topic. We just don't talk a lot about this. It was interesting because it started out as a medical tool. Mm -hmm. It was a form of therapy in a mm-hmm. sense and it wasn't considered sexual at all yeah. it was a completely desexualized object and I think that speaks possibly to the most right. resonant part of the play for me about how closely you can work with something or someone and mm-hmm. still not know hardly anything about it or that person yeah. and I think there are a lot of things that you see in the play that feel really close to home uh, you are directing a, a play called Church yes Yeah. so tell me a little bit about that It's a play by Young Jean Lee, who is a relatively new playwright. It's kind of a unique work for her. Another one of her well-known pieces is called Straight White Men. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit outside of her normal um, sort of hyper-progressive work, and yet there's a lot of her voice in it, obviously. So it sort of plays with this line between ritual and performance, which is something I love. What's the difference between theater and ritual? What makes something real or false. Mm-hmm. And the main concept addressed in the play is faith. And I think regardless of whether that faith is religious or not, we live in a really doubtful society. Everyone's quick to disbelieve. So I think it's an interesting conversation to start about what does it mean to have faith in something and what do you believe in? Yeah, that's good. Um, that is really interesting. I, um, I read a, a quote um, by Lee and she said, that the play was designed to target, she said. She says in her words, the play yes. is designed to target myself and my own demographic. If yep. the preacher were to rail against homosexuality, everyone would laugh. But if he rails against spending too much money on eating out, then everyone's guilty. Yeah, I love Lee's approach to this. She says when she writes, she asks herself a question that she can't answer, and her play is her working through that. So she was raised by really faithful evangelical people, and then after coming to college, she was sort of like, this isn't for me and became pretty liberal, didn't really have a strong sense of faith. And then later in life was sort of exploring what is that line? Mm -hmm. What, what valuable things were in that and what is harsh and sort of negotiating her own relationship with the church she was raised in. And I think that's a great point about that, where she plays with the line of taking what's good and making it relevant to people in her own set of view. She said um, in another interview that she's trying to convince herself to convert with the play. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> it's yeah. her preaching to herself. What else are you doing this year? I mean, not that this is not enough. But. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, outside of the theater realm, I instruct yoga. So I teach cool. yoga at Pang, um, okay. the gym on campus. Yeah. And let me think. I do spend a lot of time in the theater working here. Um, 
So you were recently, or maybe not recently, but you've been like trained in yoga and you've got like a, like a certification for training or that Yeah. Kind of I have a 200 hour yoga teacher training certification. So cool. Yeah. And when did that happen? When do you have time for that? <laughs> right. It was, um, <laughs> the spring semester of my senior year of high school actually. And it was every weekend I'd have six to eight hours of class. So I just remember my parents saying, I don't know what high school senior wants to go to class every day of the week. And I was like, I just have to. It's such fascinating information. Something you learn in yoga teacher training is even though you sit in the front of the room with your mat, like demonstrating all the poses, usually teaching to people who are maybe beginners, something that is important to remember and really fundamental to teaching is that you're just a guide and it's their journey and it's their practice. And all you're doing is offering help where you can and maybe opening some doors for people to walk through, which I think it's easy when you're sitting in the director's chair to get like those, like you always see in movies where they're yelling and they're snapping their fingers and asking for coffee and demanding that people act a certain way. But I think if you take a step back and maybe lower your chair a little bit, you see that there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of potential. There's a lot of wisdom in everyone. And if you let that come to fruition by creating a safe space and offering some questions or some guiding principles, that often creates better work than if you demand things. The Talking Studio is produced by Daniel King and Todd Jacobs at the College of Fine Arts at Ohio University. We're still early in the development of this discussion series, but we have a growing docket of conversations and we're scheduling more each month. Check us out on both iTunes and SoundCloud or search for Talking Studio at Ohio University. You can also get in touch through email at finearts@ohio.edu. Let us know what you think. 